кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. From torture to the summary execution of civilians to the widespread abduction and forced deportations of non-combatants, the anecdotal evidence of Russian war crimes in Ukraine has been mounting for months. Both the International Criminal Court and the Ukrainian authorities have launched formal investigations for crimes against humanity and potentially genocide. But as was the case with the downing of flight MH17 eight years ago, a lot of the shoe leather forensic work into these crimes is also being conducted by teams of investigative journalists. And today, we'll speak to a member of such a team who's just returned from a reporting trip to Ukraine. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the Taylor Dowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the Washington, D.C. metro area is Peter Pomodonsic a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University and author of the books Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Inside the Surreal Heart of the New Russia, and This is Not Propaganda. Welcome back to The Vertical, Peter. It's been way too long. Uh, my pleasure. Glad to have. So first of all, and also welcome back to the United States, Peter. Um, I understand you just returned from a long reporting trip to Ukraine. Uh, where you're working on a project with the renowned war crimes reporter Janine DiGiovanni and the great Ukrainian investigative reporter Natalia Gumanyuk. Well, to get us started, Peter, can you explain to our listeners what this project entails? So maybe a good way to think about it is, is from the point of view of what Russia is doing. Russia is trying to uh, both um, take away Ukrainians' legal rights uh, through human rights abuses, through war crimes, through Uh, crimes against humanity and maybe even intent to genocide, but it's also trying to uh, destroy the idea of Ukraine, uh, destroy Ukraine's right to tell its own story, um, have its own culture, its identity. And so a full response against that needs both the legal response to hold Russia accountable for its legal crimes, but also, you know, justice in the, ter in the sense of in the court of public opinion and, and in the field of culture and meaning. So we're trying to put those two things together, which they don't usually get put together. And what that means in practice is combining the power of the law and 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 storytelling. So we have a team of researchers and journalists across the country collecting testimonies that can be used for uh, legal processes and working with lawyers to do that in a way that is uh, uh, good enough for, 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 for courts, all types of courts, international and Ukrainian. And at the same time, they are creating the research to create these much deeper stories for media, for theater, for exhibitions that will make sure that Ukraine's story is told, you know, when the news cameras move on. So in six months time, in a year and two years time. So in, in, in a sense, you're on one hand gathering evidence, but on the other hand, you're also creating content. Um, and there seems... I would, I would imagine there's some kind of tension between these two things because the gathering of evidence cannot, of course, immediately be made public um, while creating content by definition is made public. So how do you how do you handle this this contradiction there? Well, it's not a cute, I mean, just with tact. I mean, some testimonies can be used straight away. 
others can't, question of procedure sometimes, but it's not as if every piece of testimony then becomes a media story. It's just as, you know, th 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 these things are happening at the same time. Um, uh, sometimes, certainly when we tell our stories and the stories we're doing are gonna be very thematic. So for example, we, we're not just doing the story of a person, we're doing themes that we see emerging. So the siege of Mariupol, for example, is something that we'll do, but we'll, we'll our, our, our mission is to show how this is a consistent way of, of destroying urban um, urban civilian areas for Russia. So we're going to we're going to bring in the story of the siege of Grozny and the siege of Aleppo. As we tell this larger story, you know, we want and, and this larger history, we'll definitely mention the war crimes we come across. But it's not like we found a war crime. We're doing a story about it. That's not right. What we're doing. So you're looking you're looking for kind of broader narratives and stories you can tell and in the context of that you're also gathering evidence of of, of war crimes in the process. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the war crime stuff, you know, that you know, we'll, we'll probably be sh shuffled or that depends on what the lawyers think is best, but we'll probably give that to other cases that are being built elsewhere as long as if we right. have to right be the ones building the cases. We're just I, I suppose what is very important, what is new, is A, to think about these things at the same time, both the cultural bit and the legal bit, and make sure that they're moving together. Uh, historically, I think there's been a little bit of a tension between the two in the sense that the way journalists gather evidence, and journalists are often the first people at the scene of a crime, the way they gather evidence is often inconsistent with legal protests. So there, I mean, certainly what my colleague Janine has found is that her notebooks from Bosnia were completely irrelevant in court. So the way journalists gather evidence is often incompatible with legal processes and indeed often can get in the way of them because we ask leading questions and we re-traumatize people and we do all these things which probably make for great stories but uh, make stuff inadmissible in court. So it's to make sure that doesn't happen, that the journalists don't gather evidence in ways that, that would make it impossible to be used in court later. So mitigating a harm that often happens. Uh -huh. um, but also, look, look, journalists are at the same time the people who are often first at the scene of a crime. You know, and, you know, the, the ICC has, I don't know, 16 or 20, whatever, investigators in, in, in Ukraine. Think how many journalists there are. There's a lot more. Right. Right. But in this sense, you're kind of learning from past experiences. I mean, you're talking about Janine's notebooks from the from the war in Bosnia being inadmissible. Yep. So you have lawyers advising you about I mean, does this change the way you do your reporting on this on this stuff? I, mean, I guess they would have to. Pretty good question. It makes you I mean, uh, I'm not on the ground. I mean, obviously, we have teams on the ground, but I was at the trainings. I ended up enjoying it. But yes, you have to. So it's more about going. Yes, it's definitely you have to lean away from leading questions. You've got to be very careful of the questions that you ask, that you're not forcing people. and often uh, the way journalists um, are tempted to uh, ask questions is is would be inadmissible in court. Um, um, and also we have to be very careful not not with not re-traumatizing people. That's very, very important as well. Uh, and sadly, that's I think that's something that media does sometimes, uh, not not always, but sometimes just sort of going back to to people and tell us, you know, you know that famous quip, you know, who here has been raped and speaks English? You know this this famous right, right, right. So you got all that kind of stuff, which I think. Look, I think most journalists are careful with it, but here it's it's really. Yeah, I mean, I think journalistic ethics themselves would kind of prevent you pre prevent good journalists from doing a lot of the things that you shouldn't be doing in terms of making stuff admissible in court. No. Um, no, but like it's no, it is still different. But also, but also it's a case of rigor and accuracy. So, so what is okay for a story is not the same thing as what's okay for testimony. So it's a lot of going back, a lot right, of going back right. and saying, okay, like like you know, details about times, about streets, about places, about gathering enough evidence to reprove something. You know, 
we know we, 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 we to tell a story in a newspaper you do the bare minimum often and so that's already lots but for something to be admissible in court you just need so much more right. detail so it's about depth and detail and then avoiding some of these uh some of these kind of like some of these um i don't know i don't want to say the word bad but some of these um more manipulative uh methods of questioning uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, I know you can't talk about specific cases for obvious reasons that we've already discussed, but there's a, I mean, there's been a whole litany of things that are being documented across Ukraine by by the media. Um, everything from the summary executions of civilians in places like Bucha and elsewhere, to the filtration camps where, you, where, 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 where Ukrainians in occupied territories are, are being forced to go through, um, to the abductions. Um, which is something I'm particularly concerned about and want to kind of drill into, but just I'm not we're not finding I'm not finding many people who know a lot about this. Um, another aspect of that I've, that I've been kind of concerned with is the, the the cultural genocide, the Russification of the Russian occupied areas. Um, you were you, you were just in Ukraine for a bit. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what you know what you saw, what you experienced, uh, to the extent that you can talk about it? Yeah, I mean, look, look, all those things that you talked about are really important. I think with the with the deportations, there's also a very important story emerging with with children who are being taken away and uh, placed in, in in Russian foster homes. And I, I can't really go into details, but, but some of the stories we're finding is that the, these children have parents that we definitely have orphanages being taken from from eastern Ukraine, and then, well, definitely we appear there appears to be some evidence suggesting that there are. You know, you know, whole orphanages being deported and giving to foster parents in in Russia, but 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 also we've come across stories where children did have um, parents and said they had parents and and they were being given away into the system of 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 foster care in Russia. So so there's a lot. Again, everything has to be proven, but those are some of the stories that are emerging. Let's I don't want to make any crazy allegations, but but that's really worrying and and really quite quite unique historically, I think. But but. Um, so all those things, I mean, and th 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 there's so much, um, I mean, I was, there's also some stuff which I don't know if it's a war crime and, and I'm not a lawyer, but, but I, I find this, what's really happening in a lot of Ukraine at the moment is this sort of like, essentially this tactic of terrorizing population. So I was in Kharkiv and it's just, you know, on the one hand, Russia retreated from Kharkiv, which is a great victory, but the car, the town can't go back to normal. They're just lobbing very crass artillery into the center every other day. And when I was there, I think two pieces of artillery hit. One just hit a nice little courtyard in the center of town. I think people were injured, no one died. Then day before I came, I think five people died again. So these numbers compared to, I don't know, Mariupol are not huge, but it's this nonstop stress and this nonstop sense you can't go back to normal. And there's this kind of low, you know, this, this drone of psychological I don't know, terror, and I'm not using the word legally, but but psychological terror that spread. Uh, and obviously Kharkiv is at the hard edge of this, but you see this at Dnipro and many other places as well. Um, and and I, maybe it is a little bit like living in, um, living in a country where terrorists are constantly letting off bombs and maybe the death count is not like on the front lines of a war, but it's enough to keep everybody on edge. People can't go back to, kids can't go back to school and, and so on and so forth. <laughs> And another aspect of this I've been really interested in is the um, the media aspect of it in Russia. Um, a lot of attention was placed on this this article in RIA Novosti back in April, um, which Timothy Snyder famously called a genocide handbook. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the article, which is basically 
it was basically arguing that for the complete eradication of the Ukrainian nation um, in 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 Ria Novosti, which is of course the official Russia uh, <clears throat> Russian state news agency. Are you are you looking at this aspect of it as well? So definitely. So so we're collecting. I mean, and this is where it gets really interesting. You know. Um, to what extent, I mean, what, what are the different crimes involved? There could be crime, no, there could be war crimes, there could be human rights violations, there could be crimes against humanity when it's a more, you know, when we see a consistent uh, pattern, or, or of course, there's intent to genocide. And I'm not a lawyer, and you should get lawyers on to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I have, every, I've had lawyers. <laughs> exactly, and every, but pretty much every lawyer I've talked to now thinks there's a case there around intent to genocide because of statements like this from Russian officials and in Russian media. Um, and that's, I remember talking to somebody from Guernica, this was, this was a public discussion, from Guernica 37, which is a big, uh, sort of British-based um, uh, chambers that focuses on, on, on these issues, and they were like, you know, Toby Cadden, who's, who's one of the lead lawyers there, was like, he hadn't thought, when it started, he didn't think it was, you can make a case around intent to genocide, but when these sorts of statements started becoming consistent and regular, he now thinks that there is a case. And, you know, that's a pretty that's a, a pretty big thing for a lawyer to say. It's one thing for journalists to throw around these words. But when lawyers say it, you know, they're serious. I, I had three former war crimes prosecutors on this program a couple of months back, and they all thought there was a strong case for genocide um yeah. already and this was this was months back um have you can you talk at all about this like the, the summary executions and the filtration camps and stuff like that is this is another thing we've been seeing I mean, no, no, honestly i did we, we haven't the filtration camps and the deportations is, is something that, that, that we will try to gather evidence around it's it's really hard i mean there is a trickle of people coming out well there are some ukrainians coming out who can give evidence and there's some very brave Russian journalists inside the country who are working on this, but but we're still, I think, at a very early stage of really understanding, uh, you know, what what's what's uh, how these places work, and 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 what exactly kind of the upshot of them is. So I I don't think we're anywhere near really under getting a full picture. Right. Okay. Before we move into the second half, I wanted to kind of take a look at a couple of pieces you've you've written recently, um, where, which I I found pretty compelling. You had an article in Time a couple of months back when you kind of personalized it. You opened the article with a scene of uh, of your grandmother um, uh, recalling Kharkiv uh, in 1932 during the Holodomor. I mean, how much is your own personal life story and history? Uh, um, um, you know, informing you in this. I mean, for those that don't know your 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 life story, my understanding is you were born in Soviet Kiev and you you emigrated with your parents to the UK when you were nine months old. Correct? Yes, yes. I am. I I love the, this idea that I, I did this actively at nine months old. Um, um, <laughs> it's just like, and, and then I emigrated. Um, yeah, I think I think I totally think it's part of my personal story. Um, I mean, Ukraine is a huge part of me. I was it's not just I wasn't just born there. Like every one of my family's from there. Um, like my granny's from Kharkiv, the other grannies they're all from Kiev. My father's family's from Odessa. He grew up in Chernivtsi. So, so 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 that so Ukraine really and, and, and all of Ukraine really is is part of my personal story. So so in that sense, of course, um I mean I'm British essentially, but but um Obviously, I'm very, very, I guess this is a very personal war for me. Uh, but 
Um, to what extent does it does it? Um, I mean, you, you used a similar tactic in, in this is not propaganda, kind of interspersing your personal story with the with with, with the um, with with, yeah. with the, the subject matter. Yeah. Uh, opening. yeah. Yeah. But in both those books, I'm, I'm really using the, the personal story as a, as a mechanism. I'm not I don't um, I have a lot of difficulty with the American first person narrative, which is really about sharing your feelings. Um, I, I use myself as a narrator in virtually all my books, and I'm just, I was, I'm just writing a book now where I thought I wouldn't do that for the first time, and, and I've ended up doing it. Um, um, but, but I'm very, very, I kind of strip it of, of, of any kind of personal emotion. I'm, I'm very much thinking of myself as a device. And again, I, I don't, I, I have a lot of difficulty with the American first-person memoir, which is all about personal catharsis and um, what is it? Is it the, the the personal essay that all Americans have to submit for university? That's something that that, that I, I I I enjoy reading it, but but I struggle with it. I mean, even even I even struggle with it. Someone as as wonderful as Gary Steingart, uh, I never quite understand why I'm meant to care about somebody's personal feelings. But um um, but I guess in English. So so in in that sense, in the article you're referring to, I, again, I do it for a very specific reason. It's not about personal emotion. I'm trying to make a point, which is deeply related to the work that we're doing, is that this is a repeat offense. So my granny, you know, when she was dying in London, suddenly had these hallucinations of Kharkiv during the Holodomor and all these skeletal children wandering around her hometown when she suddenly hallucinated in the wards of of, of St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington. And, and she'd always suppressed these memories. She'd never talked about it. She'd never talked about it, not with me. Um, and, and that's sort of so common in that bit of the world, this sort of suppressed trauma. And, and what I was really trying to reference was, was that um, this is a, a repeat violation that Russia is committing. It comes back generation after generation and rapes, breaks, kills. And, and I suppose why part of the reason we called our project The Reckoning was because we really feel that this is the moment where that needs to stop. Um, and I think Ukrainians are very aware of it. It's like, like, like this is where it ends. Um, they can't keep coming back and doing this over and over and over. So um, I suppose we're in like the villages and the seven samurai who've had enough. Um, and um, so, so in that sense, yes, um, I see this as not just a personal story, but as as part of a historical, good. Uh, part of a historical uh, cycle that has to be stopped now. And. That's kind of the special thing that we're doing in our in our in our project in the reckoning is that we're always trying to put Putin's crimes in context and in 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 in, in historical context. So, for example, we will definitely be looking at the occupation of of Kherson and all these places uh, that the Russians are occupying in eastern Ukraine. But then we'll compare them with the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe because it's you know we're working with Anne Applebaum, the historian who's written about this, and and she just sees you know the pattern repeat over and over and over. Um, again, the use of grain, uh, the use of hunger as a way yeah. to kind of hold the world hostage is, is, is you know, oh, right. There were uh, echoes of the Holodomor in the recent. Yeah, yeah. But also, but also like so many, so many things, uh, the, 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 the execution of, you, you talk about mass executions, but what we can tell the executions aren't just of random people there. There are local administrative heads, but they're also of intellectuals and civil society. So they want to wipe out the intellectual elites, which is what they did in, in the 1930s as well. So these patterns repeat over and over, and um, we're trying to really make that point that this is not a one-off, that uh, this is a pattern in history that's repeated over and over, and also a pattern geographically. So, you know, it's what Putin did in Syria and in Chechnya. So that's kind of the editorial philosophy of, of the Reckoning Project, um, which is to show that, that 
you know, in that sense, it's about the court of public opinion. I suppose we're trying to make a case that this is not an accident. This is not some crazy general. It's not Putin's gone mad. This is the Russian way of war and occupation, which is their methodology, which is repeated and which which has to be held to account and has to stop. Um, so, yes, that's that's kind of our aim. Um, and and in the, the extent to which I use my personal story in the article, it really is just to highlight that um, to because, you know, there's there's, you know, family evidence around that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I hope that was a good answer. No, it was a great answer. And I also be, I did want to bring in one more personal anecdote um, because it involves your father, who's a former colleague and friend, uh, current friend and former colleague of mine. To get that wording right. Um, you <laughs> told this you tell this story and this is not propaganda about your father who was going for a swim in Odessa. And yes. he was arrested by the KGB. And when he got out of the when he got out of the water, and they were standing over his clothes, they made him put his trousers on over his swim trunks, um, yeah. which created a very uncomfortable interrogation. And that this you 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 talk about the significance of that in 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 in, in, in terms of what the KGB's aims were there. Um, and and you, you you use that story to kind of launch into the the this is not propaganda your your, your latest book. Can you talk a little bit about that anecdote and what what it what it tells? Does it does it have any significance? for what we're talking about here. Yes, yes. Well, I think the key word here is humiliation. Um, you know, this is there's the petty humiliation that the KGB try to impose on their on the people they interrogate. But then there's the much larger humiliation which which the Kremlin wants to impose onto Ukraine. And I've been thinking a lot about this term humiliation um, because you know, Putin is constantly talking about how he feels humiliated, how Russia is humiliated. And we have Macron saying we must not humiliate Russia. And, 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 there's, and, and I do think it's actually humiliation. I, mean, I profoundly disagree with, with, with President Macron's desire not to humiliate Russia. Um, but I do think this idea of humiliation is absolutely critical. Um, you know, there isn't, let, let, let's start with Russia humiliating Ukraine. They're almost doing it for the sake of it. I mean, you know, they're, 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 this is clearly an exercise in empire building. They don't deny this. They, they, you know, Putin openly compares himself to Peter the Great and says that, you know, this Ukraine has to be subjugated to Russia. But but what is it an empire in the name of? I mean, it's just chauvinism for the sake of it. It's not really, there's no sort of, you know, there's no sort of great enlightening idea. I mean, when the British or whatever built their empires, they had all this probably nonsense, but they had the civilizing mission and stuff. There's none of that now. It's a, it's a you know, they, they change their excuse every week. One moment it's denazification, then it's NATO expansion, then it's the Russian world. I mean, it's, it's just this sort of like, you know, this vomit of, 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 of contradictory rationalizations at the core of which though, is this act of humiliation. You know, they want to make the Ukrainians feel powerless and to show their power over them and to get them to go onto their knees. And, and that's expressed in so many ways. That's expressed in the behavior of the army. That's expressed in the language of the diplomats who are constantly belittling Ukraine. Um, and and, that's, and that's, that's what the Ukrainians are very aware of and, and are struggling against. They say very clearly, that, you know, they're struggling for dignity and for their right to define their own meaning. Um, so, um, but, but, but I suppose the question is why are the Russians so obsessed with humiliating others? And I suppose one way of thinking about it, that domestically it's also, a cycle of, of humiliation, you know, going back historically, whether it's the gulag or, or you know, the various oppressive systems uh, within Russia itself. I mean, you know, uh, I'm in no way comparing 
um, what, what the center goes through compared to the periphery. The periphery tends to always suffer much more, but it's, it is a culture of humiliation that, that exists at every level in Russian society, in the army with its hazing, and it's shocking to see how Russian soldiers are just left to rot by their own troops. Um, um, it's, it's present at work where there's a culture of humiliation, it's present in the attitude to, towards minorities and to women and to children. You know, there's laws legitimizing domestic violence that were passed and so on and so forth. Uh, and obviously there's the political humiliation of, of not being, you know, not being allowed to vote and so on. So it's, it's this culture of humiliation which, you know, produces a very, very resentful population. And also it's historical, you know, it's something that goes back for decades and, and centuries and produces just this sort of like very, very resentful population, this elite which itself feels very vulnerable and resentful, bizarrely. Um, you know, every oligarch could lose everything tomorrow. And, and they then take that out through humiliating others. So this is endless cycle of, of humiliation, aggression, and I think sadomasochism as well, sort of sadism and then this weird kind of uh, celebration of suffering as well. Um, so, so um, you know, it's, it's just like a, so in that little anecdote between my father and the KGB, you have, a, so I suppose, a little, a germ of a much, a much greater, a much greater symptom. Um, and, and, you know, all that we know about the humiliated, I've been dipping into the sort of psychoanalytical literature is that um, what you have to do with them, there's no point coddling them because it's such a destructive cycle. You have to be very firm and say, no, there are limits um, and um, there are limits and there's borders and and this, your behavior is unacceptable and trying to coddle them or trying to make them feel better is, is sort of pointless. Yeah, in, 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 a, in a piece you did for The New York Times last week, uh, which you, the, the title is Ukraine is the next act in Putin's empire of humiliation, which is I, I found to be a really compelling piece. And you open with this this woman, woman Valentina, um, and when the Russian troops arrived in her village, she asked them why they were there, and they said, "We want you to be with us. We want you to be with Russia." And you want you use that to get into this piece that that explained this humiliation concept in, in, in that way. Um, anything to add there before we move into the second half? I think we have to think very seriously about how we communicate to Russians being aware of this. You know, this is this is something that goes very, very deep in society. And and, you know, in some ways, I think part of the power of Putin's propaganda is that he plays both sides of the kind of of the humiliation dynamic. He's both the one who does the humiliating uh, and he acts out this sort of like, you know, sadistic colossus striding across the world. And then the next second he's acting out the role of the humiliated, you know, he's the sort of put upon Russian everyman uh, saying, oh, we're being humiliated by the world and by the Rothschilds and by the Rockefellers and by America and by the global conspiracy. And, you know, so he's acting out both the, the humiliated and, and the compensation of the humiliation. I think that might be part of his power as a communicator in Russia. Yeah, and even in the eve of the, the eve of the war, when he had that now infamous meeting with his security chiefs, and he forced each of them to get up and, and express their their support for the war. Um, this is a good this is a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and shift gears to look at how the nature of Putin's rule at home is changing 
as a result of the war in Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power of Critical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the Washington, D.C. metro area is Peter Pomodonsen, senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and author of the books, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and This is Not Propaganda. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... Гонов вас. С новым веком. So in the early phase of Putin's rule, the Kremlin seemed to rely more on passive acquiescence rather than repression. It utilized a sort of virtual reality politics with fake political party parties and simulated democracy to mask oligarchic and authoritarian rule. This so-called managed democracy is most commonly associated with Putin's former chief ideologist, Vladislav Zirkov. This began to change when Putin returned to the Kremlin in 2012 and the regime faced a fledgling opposition movement and when more traditional forms of repression were deployed. But since the invasion of Ukraine in February, the mask appears to be completely off and repression appears to be the Kremlin's main instrument of control. Peter, I know you chronicled this. You were one of the best chroniclers of early Putinism and the Sirkovism and the managed democracy and the virtual politics that existed in this time. We've seen this change. It began changing in 2012 and it's changing again now. How do you view this transformation? Is is circovism, if you will, and passive acquiescence completely out now, or has circovism just taken on a much, much more cynical form in, 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 in today's Russia? It's a really good question, uh, Brian. I mean, certainly, I mean, it, it sort of disappeared in 2014, really, uh, when we went from like, you know, this experimentation of having this sort of imitation democracy to this um, very different approach of, um, 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 I mean, there are no sort of different parties sort of that, that are faking democracy anymore. Everything is really bunched around, you know, the the people and the sort of mass psychology. So in that sense, it ended a long time ago. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, th I think the Kremlin is still scared of too much um, <laughs> mobilization. I mean, still, they still get worried. Yeah, by you it. always thought, yeah, you always thought they don't like to get it too hot. They don't want the mobilization yeah, yeah. to be too hot. Um, and they prefer yeah, to rely yeah, on yeah, passive yeah, acquiescence. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I think I think they're in a hard position. I think I think no, I think they still like a passive society which just sort of nods along to the war and doesn't think too much about it. Um, and and they all, you know, they, they don't mainframe the gearkins of this world who want to go harder and bigger. So you know, they still they still keep things weirdly kind of bitter and angry, but 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 sort of weirdly kind of passive in in their own way. Um, and they still haven't announced mass mobilization, which you know, if they were to do that, then they'd need a much more active populate population, but they don't seem to be, be going that way. They seem to be doing mobilization on the sly. So maybe that's because they don't feel they can mobilize a passive population. They've been keeping them passive so long, they can't 
mobilize them. It's a bit like the COVID thing when they try to get people to use the COVID vaccine, they couldn't. <laughs> I mean, they're very good at keeping people passive. They're not very good at activating them. So, so it could be they feel they can't or, or they don't want to. They don't want too much action because that, that can get out of control because then you have population that starts demanding victory and you know a more successful war. And so far, it's a very unsuccessful war. So, so all those things. But I guess going forward, they are going to have a problem because in order to keep the system going, there's going to be less money and there's going to be less pie to, to hand around. If the sanctions are effective, of course. And then you do need to keep people motivated through a mix of ideology and fear. And not actually be fear, but some ideology as well. Now, that's a big shift because even in the period from 2014, um, it still was a case of just saying, oh, Crimea is ours and Putin is great um, and all that kind of stuff. But then you went off and did your thing and, you know, your motivation was not was not ideology. Your motivation was 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 profits and, you know, getting a nicer life. Um, now, that's kind of going to be much harder having that nicer life. And and that social contract that we've always talked about has been seriously undermined. And then I guess you then what is people's motivation? You know, if it's if, the, if it's the ideology isn't, you know, the sort of manner that keeps you going. It isn't this sort of like oxygen. It's just something that you doff your cap to. And if uh, there's no more, the personal profit motive has disappeared. And I guess all that's going to be left is fear. And how much fear can they do? How strong is their repressive mechanism? How big are the prisons? I mean, I know they stuff 40 people into a cell already. Can they stuff 80 people into a cell? So I see trouble ahead because for exactly the same, for the reason you said, which is why it's such a good question. It's always been about passive, but passive worked when there was enough oil money to spray around. And for the moment there is, frankly, but it's getting, you know, it's becoming a much weaker shower of oil money. He said, mm -hmm. and, and then, and then, yeah. And then how do you keep it going? You know, if it's not militant, it's not about like the belief in the great cause uh, that you're ready to really sacrifice yourself for, then what is it going to be? So I, I see trouble ahead. Um, and, and, yeah, I guess they're in a kind of vice, aren't they? They're kind of in a, in a, you know, by having made people passive now that they might right. need a militant society, um, that's going to be really hard to do. Yeah. So, yeah, that, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I want to drill down on a couple of things you said here, because I see a, I see a couple of shifts going on right now. Um, one is from the, the unideological to the ideological, right? Early Putinism was very ideological, if you will. It's, it's ironic that the, the, the kind of the puppet master of that, Vladislav Surkov, was called often Putin's chief ideologist, but there wasn't really an ideologist. The ideology, there was kind of a virtual politics at that period, right? Um, yeah. And at that time, the social contract was that people effectively gave up their political freedoms in, in exchange for prosperity. Um, this exactly. began to shift in 2014, um, and it's shifting again now um, to the hyper-ideological, this ideological project of restoring Russia's imperial greatness, right? Um, this also signified a shift in the social contract. Um, you give up your political freedoms and your prosperity in exchange for an empire. Um, that seems to be what Putin has been trying to sell to the Russian people since 2014. But the, the 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 bind I see them in now is that now Putin is kind of caught between two poles because you will have a portion of the society and the elite 
um, that would really prefer just to go back to the old kleptocratic way, right? The old, the old ideological kleptocratic way where, 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 where everybody could just make money. Um, they're not happy with this situation because they've lost what they thought they were getting on the old social contract. But Russia's losing the war in Ukraine. So he's not delivering on the new social contract either, right? For the people that want that, the, the Donbass, let's face it, isn't enough. Uh, they want the military preyed on the Khrushchev, right? They want nothing short of that. And Putin is ironically in this position where he's ple- he could be in this position where he's pleasing exactly nobody. Um, I've kind of, in a perverse way, compared this to, to the conundrum Mikhail Gorbachev found himself in in the late 1980s. Uh, you had hardline communists that wanted to go back to the way it was, and you had you know, uh, Democrats who wanted the complete dismantling of the system, and, and Gorbachev was kind of stuck in the middle there, pleasing exactly nobody. This is in no way to say Gorbachev and Putin are similar, but this conundrum is similar. Do you, do you, how do you see that kind of a thing playing out? Yeah, I mean, exactly. So, you know, so, so I think that you've put it really well, and it's a really nice historical comparison. I mean, I think they're in a dangerous place. I think they're in a bad place themselves. Um, so, um, I, I mean, I expect what we'll see is more more fear. But again, what is, how much fear can they really do? Um, can they really start? Stalin. Yeah, but can, do they have, yeah, I mean, can they? <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that they can. To, to, to wrap us up, I do want to return to Surkov because you did a lot of work on him and he was so much the author of the old system. Um, he was reportedly under house arrest in the early part of the war. I have not heard much from or about him since the war, since that in the early days of the war. But is is Surkovism dead? Is this is this is this over? Was this just a a, a, a a little a little historical period that ran from you know say 2000 to to, to 2012 and it's 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 over now? Or is this does this form of virtual politics that you've done you've put so much work into researching uh, is this going to rear its head again? Well, certainly in like Sokov I described, which is pre 2012. I mean that died a long time ago, um, but that kind of you know, I'd really see it on a continuum. I mean, arch cynicism, that arch cynicism was not a healthy thing. It really sort of um, uh, spoke to um, really, I think, something quite, I don't know, really sort of a mental illness, really. To be Mm -hmm. quite that cynical is is to see no worth in anything is, it's a very sick place to be. And that's what I try to talk about in my book, that beneath this triumphant cynicism and this, this sort of like, I mean, um, deeply, deeply nihilistic vision is, is huge unhappiness. And that way madness lies. You know, when you don't believe in anything, uh, you don't end up free and happy. You end up really kind of like the characters in my book, you know, towards which ends in like 13, 14, are already plunging into a form of madness. So, so I don't think, I, I, I think I, I see it as a continuum. You know, decadence is, is one of the, there's kind of like, malign decadence where you don't believe in anything is ends up in a very very unhealthy place and the characters in my book end up in cults and and all sorts of nasty places and and i think there's that great line from tim snyder post-truth is pre-fascism right. uh, you know uh, when you don't believe in anything you end up in 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 conspiratorial worldviews which replace sort of rational thinking and replace belief and you end up you know i think very very unhappy and aggressive so, so 
I would not, I'd see it as a continuum. I, I think that the world that I described in my first book was a, a stage post on the way to where we are now. Um, the, um, uh, so, so I'd see it as a continuum. I'd see it very much as a continuum, but there is a kind of unhealthy giggling and then a, a very unhealthy giggling emptiness behind behind right. so much of what we see in 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 the Russian state, um, and um, and we'll see the extent to which the rhetoric of which is a fascistic rhetoric of you know you know the people and the leader and the claim to be ready to sacrifice yourself how deep that actually goes, you know? To what extent is this 1930s fascism with its cult of sacrifice? Or to what extent is this almost like a, a cosplaying of fascism, which when things come to actual sacrifice, um, collapses? We'll see. I don't and, that, and, and that depends on where Russian society is going to be. But if uh, post-truth is pre-fascism, if you took, think of the, the period of high circovism as post-truth, um, it was also pre-fascism, which gives you a pretty good idea of where, where we probably are now. Um, finally, I mean, I'd say like circovism is dead, but long live circovism, I would think is it's, it's I mean, not, 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 I'm not saying that in a normative sense, but what, what I see is hyper circovism international circovism this whole politics of illusion that was used to control russian society now has now gone international and this whole alternative reality of you know ukraine being run by fascists uh has been blasted out into in, 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 into the international sphere so maybe in, in in one sense even though Surkov has lost its political influence this is kind of almost the ultimate if you could use the word triumph i, I don't want to use that word but it, but the, 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 the kind of triumph of his 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 twisted worldview no well 2014 definitely was and he was still very active then yeah he was foreign affairs uh, advisor yeah now now they don't care anymore now they're like you know, we're just going to show the world that we don't care. I mean, they, they are doing propaganda, and I think some of it's very effective, but it's more about rational self-interest. They're more saying, are you sure, you know, that they're using, you know, they're intimidating, and they're saying, you guys, Europe, you're going to freeze unless you came. I think, you know, I think we're kind of beyond smoke and mirrors into kind of like brutal humiliation, where, you know, the smoke and mirrors and the kind of grinning, sarcastic, sort of disinformation which kind of winked and nod and told you it was disinformation at the same time in a very unnerving way i think we're beyond that into the kind of like once you get beyond the smoke and mirrors you're into the cellar of of you know brutal sadomasochism and i think what's very interesting in europe is the extent to which we haven't we still think that this is ukraine's war well it's completely obvious that while russia is humiliating ukraine physically and through war crimes and through physical subjugation the uh, the subjugation of Europe through energy is also an act of humiliation. And of course, I don't think Europe has really ever processed the legacy of Soviet occupation and Russian dominance from the Second World War till the end of the Cold War. Um, I don't think there has been a period of serious self-reflection and self-analysis and understanding to the extent to which those bits of the world were humiliated. And I don't think have recovered from that humiliation in many ways, I think, especially Germany. Um, and its own weird way, France, which is a separate discussion. Which has um, never occupied by the Russians. 
Yeah, well, I mean, there they weren't humiliated by the Russians, they were humiliated by the Germans, but then the Russians were the thing that legitimized them internationally, famously. Um, it was Stalin who said France is a victim. Um, you know, there's that great scene when Keitel, yeah. the German general, is, 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 is signing the capitulation to the victors, and the Brits are there, the Americans are there, the Russians, and or well, the Soviets, and, and the French. And Keitel turns around and goes, oh, so the French are victors, are they? And of course, it was only Stalin who elevated France that way in order to have France as, as his supporter. Um, and the French were, no, they were humiliated by the Germans, but they, you know, they always had to be thankful to the Soviets for rehabilitating them. And, and in many ways, I think they take it out on the Americans. But certainly in Central Europe, um, you talk about a Hungary, which was sort of crushed and utterly broken by the Soviets in 56, and, and now crawls to Putin like this sort of father figure who they want to they beg it for protection. I mean, you're, you're taking the figure that humiliated you and hurt you and asking for protection. It's completely perverse. But that set of deeply, deep, and Slovakia is something similar. I mean, this deeply perverse set of, of dynamics, which all revolves around energy, um, and of course, centrally in Germany, has never been processed psychologically. No one has ever really admitted that what Russia is doing to Europe is humiliating it. What it is saying is, you thought you could get away after the Cold War, you ain't getting away. That's what they're saying to Ukraine. You thought you'd get away, you ain't getting away. But at least the Ukrainians know what the Russians are doing and they're fighting it. In Europe, they refuse to admit it. So you have a humiliated half continent that refuses to face up to it, that refuses to admit the traumas that it doesn't want to analyze, the rapes it doesn't want to remember, the uh, the calibrations that it, it tries to kind of for, you know, deal with through lustration, which is a way of also not facing up to things a lot of the time. So there are different dynamics in these countries. I mean, in the Czech Republic, in Slovakia, of course, there are many people who do fight this, who do want to talk about it, but it's a real tension. And in Germany, I think there is virtually zero facing up to the to the to the sort of um, the Cold War past. So yeah, so this is something that, that I find I find absolutely striking. At least the Ukrainians know and admit the Russians are trying to humiliate us, we're trying to break through of the cycle. In Europe, there isn't even a recognition of the problem. Well, just, there's a start of it, but not in a deep way, in a very superficial way. And, and of course, from the Russian point of view is, the language is all about humiliation. Where will they go without us? They need us. It is the abusive husband talking about his wife who will never leave. She will never leave, she can't survive without me. That's the way Russia talks about Europe. And Europe just does not want to even start thinking about that. Well, we could hope that one of the knock-on effects, I mean, we are in a watershed moment in so many ways, and it's going to have so many knock-on effects in so many directions. And we can hope that one of these knock-on effects is going to be this much-needed reckoning um, in, in Eastern Europe on that. Uh, on that note, we can wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. Peter, I want to have you back on when uh, when, when, when this project progresses. Um, but for now, we, we, we will wrap it up for this week. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to The Power of podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the Washington, D.C. metro area has been Peter Pomodonzo, a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and author of the books, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and This is Not Propaganda. Thank you, Peter, for an enlightening discussion. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team, 
in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.